Well, we start our meeting this morning thinking about these questions. Why are we here? Where do we go? How come it's so hard? These are the questions of our hearts, the questions that are always there, the questions that really matter, the questions that we spend our lives trying to answer and trying to run away from. They're the questions we can't bring ourselves to ask out loud, aren't they? But they're also the questions that the book of Ecclesiastes meets head on. And Ecclesiastes is unflinching in its diagnosis of the deficiencies of our attempts to get through life answering these questions. We've seen the writer, we've called him the teacher, he's undertaking a grand experiment to test the answers of our age to life's big questions. And he says in chapter 2, verse 1, it's all for this reason, to find out what is good. Well, what's he found out so far? First of all, he says that life is just a breath. Now, we've seen this word meaningless pop up all throughout the book. In the Hebrew language, it's this word hevel. But as we heard a few weeks ago, there's no exact equivalent in English. So although our Bibles say meaningless, the teacher doesn't always mean meaningless. There's actually three different things that he could be trying to get at. First of all, he could be trying to say something's fleeting or temporary. Or he could be trying to say something is empty and meaningless. Or finally, he could be trying to say, it's just something that you can't control. It's like a puff of wind, air. You can't control it. Well, in chapter one, he wants to say that life is just a breath. One minute you're here, and the next minute you're not. It's not exactly cheerful, but then he's not trying to be. He's, he's trying to look at our experience of life dead on and cut away all the rubbish, get to the truth. Next, he tests out the things that we often go to to try and give our lives meaning and try and understand why we're here. Wisdom, pleasure, and projects. He says education promises us the, it promises that we can make sense of life. He says that pleasure, wealth, resources promises us that we can have fun. Projects promise us that we'll be occupied, that we'll have a permanence, we can leave a legacy. But all of it, all of that activity and effort, the teacher says, is chasing after the wind. Is there anything more pointless than chasing after the wind? I don't know if you've ever tried to do it. I don't think you'll be able to succeed. But the teacher says that's what most of us spend nearly all of our lives doing, chasing after the wind. And then he says one day we're all going to die and everything we ever work for is going to get left behind. And to top it all off, we don't even know if our children are going to use what we leave them wisely. It's an empty breath. So he says, look at all you have, look at your life, all the things you've got, your family, your work, food, drink, all of it, and see it for what it is, gifts from the hand of God. Enjoy it. He then tells us that God has set up the times and seasons of this life to make this point to us. We experience cycles of joys and lows, and both are expected. One's never far behind the other. The teacher says God's done this to show us that we dance to a tune that we haven't written. We're not in control, God is. And so the teacher says we should revere him. But then he shows us that we don't. He shows us instead we live for ourselves. He sees the world that we've made and he sees it for what it is. He sees it filled with oppression, injustice, toil, lonely money and isolated power. He sees it all and he says it is just a breath. Empty, meaningless, out of our control. Everything we do is like chasing the wind. Do you see that? Do you see? 
as we look at human activity in the world and, and see oppression and toil and see the tears of those with no one to comfort them, we see he's right, don't we? As we look at human wisdom and education and see that it's driven by envy, a desire to show that we're just as clever as the person next to us, and actually we've read the books they haven't, we see he's right, don't we? When we look at where human beings are going for pleasure, for meaning and acceptance, we see generation after generation, each more wealthy than the last, anesthetizing themselves from each other, becoming more disconnected and more unhappy. We see he's right, don't we? It's all a breath chasing the wind. And that, he says, is life under the sun. That's life without reference to God. So are we all doomed? Because that is pretty depressing, isn't it? Are we doomed? Do we just need to shut up shop and go home? Pack it in? No. The teacher says, no, of course not. All is not lost. If you're despairing about life, the universe, and everything in it, here's what he says. Use your ears. Use your ears. As we look at the world without its makeup on and try and make sense of it, the profound but simple advice we're given is stop talking and listen. Shut your mouth and listen. They're the only two points I've got today. Shut your mouth and listen. <laughs> Which makes me feel great. First of all, come to listen. Listen. Have a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen. After all the searching and questioning of chapters 1 to 4, we find ourselves here. Everything so far has been Hevel chasing after the wind, but now, now we find a worthy pursuit, don't we? Listening to God. Listening to God is unsurprisingly commended throughout the Bible. did a quick search this morning. The word listen appears in the NIV over 300 times. Not surprising. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses preaches a sermon to the people of Israel as they're camped out on the edge of the promised land. His words are to be their traveling instructions. It's like their lonely planet guide. This God's requirements for how they're supposed to live. And here's what he says. Listen. He says, Hear, O Israel. Hear. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit down at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house. Write them on your gates. He says, hear, O Israel, listen up. He wants them to tune in. You've got all these images of tying God's words to their hands and their heads, writing them on their door frames. What he's saying is, do whatever you can to help you listen. Do whatever you can to get what God is saying in through your ears and lodged in your mental processes. Do that to the point that God's words become part of who you are as a person. Get these words deep in your heart. Let these commandments seep into the way that you think and feel and look at the word, world. Listen like that. But it's not just in the Old Testament that we get this advice. Jesus says five times in the Gospels and five times in the book of Revelation, anyone who's got ears to hear, let them hear. He's telling us to listen. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, my sheep know my voice. Well, how do they know his voice? They listen. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. He says at the end of Matthew's Gospel, when he's making that great commission, go and make disciples doing what? teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. He says in John 14, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Well, 
in order to be able to obey Jesus' teaching, first of all, don't we have to listen? Do you see? You getting the picture? Listen. Listen to the Lord. And it's a mindset we need to get ourselves into. And that's why the teacher says, guard your steps. It's all about a mindset. Now, I want to come back to that idea. But first of all, I just want to speak to the person sat here thinking, is God even someone that I want to listen to? That's a great question. Chapter 3, the teacher says that God set up the times, the rhythms and seasons of this world for one purpose, so that people will fear him. His conclusion at the end of our passage today, it's right there in verse 7, is the same. Therefore, fear God. I asked two of my colleagues this week to read this passage and tell me what their questions were. And one of them said, what does it mean by fear God? Is he basically saying that we need to be frightened of God? Well, in the Bible we do see that God can be frightening. He is described in these ways, a consuming fire, a roaring lion, the Lord of hosts. That's like the Lord of all the armies in the world ever, anywhere. I don't know about you, but I'd be pretty frightened to meet that person. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. We heard a couple of weeks ago, Revelation 19, Jesus is described in the most awesome terms. He leads the armies of heaven. He judges and wages war. He strikes down nations. He judges with an iron scepter. And he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. That's intense. Yes. Yes, God can be frightening. And that's really what the teacher is getting at in verse 2. He says, God's in heaven. You're on earth. So shut up. But really what the teacher means by fear is more than this. He means not just to be afraid. He also means to respect, to honor, and to revere God. It's to look at all that God has done and who he is and act appropriately in light of that. So let me put it like this. It's the way that I described it to my friend at work. And before I do, fair warning, okay, the World Cup is happening right now and it's awesome. So you are going to get a couple of football examples, but I've minimized them. (laughs) Fair warning. Now Manchester is one of the great footballing cities of the world, isn't it? Manchester United are probably the most famous club in the world, and Manchester City are definitely the best team in the world. (laughs) Sir Alex Ferguson won 13 Premier League titles with Man United, and that commands respect because of what he's achieved. Pep Guardiola's won 24 trophies as a manager. Now, we might say in treating Sir Alex and Pep, maybe Sir Pep one day, treating these guys with honour, we're fearing them, we're showing them due respect for their achievements, acknowledging who they inherently are, Winners. You take the same logic and apply it to anybody. Dame Helen Mirren, Dame Judi Dench, you respect them because they're masters of their field. That's the sense that the teacher has in mind here. We respect him because of everything he's done. Now, God's more fearsome characteristics do play into that. They are a part of who he is after all. But for some of us, they are a huge problem and we can't see past them. How can we listen to God when we can't get past that? Well, we're going to come back to that. But I just want to briefly bring somebody else into the conversation. You might be sat here and and not thinking that God's distasteful to you, but you're on the fence as to whether God's real at all. You're not even sure if there's an afterlife or if there's anything other than what we can see and touch. But I don't buy that, okay? I don't buy that any of us really 100% believe that there's nothing to the universe apart from particles. Let me tell you what I mean. When we see a sunset or the night sky, the stars, not very often in Manchester, but... Go out to the Peak District and you'll see them. Or when we fall in love or have children, there's something inside of us that lets us know that all of this is significant, isn't there? We might not know how or why, we just know that we matter. Now, there's something inside of us that wherever the experts tell us we come from, we know that we're significant. And that's why we get angry at injustice. 
That's why we get angry at human trafficking. We know it's wrong because people matter. Where does that come from? Because the creation story of our culture tells us that it's dog-eat-dog, natural selection, survival of the fittest, as Jed would say. It's brutal. There's actually no basis for morality in this origin account. There is only cold, unflinching nature. But do you really buy that? I don't. Does it account for your sense of why you matter? Or why you yearn for significance and hope? Where does that come from? Well, the Bible gives us an answer. It tells us that God has put eternity in our hearts. Let me give you some more examples, okay? My mom, some of you have met her, she's a force of nature in many ways. She's well into tarot card readings and spiritualist stuff like that. And she's convinced that my nana is watching over all of us. Um, My sister's husband's the same. And I was chatting to my work colleagues about this on Friday, and and they were saying this to me. I don't know if you've heard this before. Um, They were talking about how numbers have special significance to them. So one one guy goes on Friday, yeah, the number 22 just keeps coming up in my life, you know. I I keep seeing it everywhere, and and I know it means something. Why does he know it means something? Where does that come from? Where does it come from? Almost 10 years ago, dad died, my dad, age 50, and the funeral was taken by a friend, and he spoke on Psalm 13. I just want to read you how Psalm 13 opens. opens like this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? It is very appropriate to read. But you know, Psalm 13 ends like this. I will sing the Lord's praise because he has been good to me. You know what we were able to say on my dad's funeral? Even though my dad wasn't a Christian, we were able to say with with certainty, thank you for my dad. His life mattered. He was a gift from God. God had been really good to us in giving us my dad. You know, a few weeks later, I can't remember exactly how many, but not long at all, my dad's older brother died, again in his 50s, and he had a humanist funeral. And the humanist minister, if that's even a thing, told the mourners how there's nothing after death, it's just nature, Uncle Peter hadn't gone anywhere. We are not significant, and our feelings are just chemicals. Now, my auntie, who's not religious in the slightest, immediately makes a beeline for me at the end of it, right? And she says, that was the most depressing experience of my life. I wanted to kill myself. My family were a little bit abrasive in the language that we use. She goes, I wanted to kill myself. Your dad's funeral was so much better. Isn't that interesting? Why is that? It's not just that we want to be comforted. It's that we know that there is more than what we see. And we make room for the things that we can't explain. Now, we might not want to admit it in the pomp and arrogance of our youth, but when that fades or our health deserts us, and more and more of the loved ones that we hold dear die, we're going to reconsider. We're going to want hope, and we'll want to be reassured that at the end of the day, it all mattered. John Mayer, an American musician, reflecting on this, sang these words, I don't know how else to say it, but I don't want to see my parents go. I am one generation's length away from fighting life out on my own. So I had a talk with my old man. I said, help me understand. And he said, turn 68, you'll renegotiate. He's right. The award-winning author Julian Barnes wrote, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. He's reflecting on that sense that we all have that life matters. 
And there's more to account for than just what we see. He misses God because God explains it and he can't. It's because God set eternity in our hearts. And we know that there's more than what we see. That's why we have these questions. Why are we here? Where do we go? How come it's so hard? There's no getting away from it. These questions are in there. And we can only run away from them for so long. They will catch up to us. Where can we find the answer to these questions? That's what the teacher's trying to get at, isn't it? If we're looking around the world for answers and it's not working, if education, pleasure and projects aren't doing enough to numb your soul from the feeling like there's more out there, if your faith in humanity is eroded by what you see them doing, where can you go? If all the options have been exhausted, what harm is there in taking God's advice and coming prepared to listen to him? Listen to what he has to say. What have you got to lose? We've got free gospels on our resource table. I'll make sure they're out later. If you want one, please take one. Why not ask a friend to read it with you? If you don't have any friends, I'll read it with you. You know, we've got these other things at Grace Church. They're called life groups. It's where we get together and we listen to God together and we figure it out together. Why don't we listen to God? What have we got to lose? Now, I promised we would go back, so let's go back a few steps. What about if you have read it, but you just didn't like what you saw? We said before that God is presented in the Bible as having powerful and awesome attributes, didn't we? He's shown as a holy judge. And while that is part of the picture, it's not the whole picture. So here's the fair warning. Here's my second football example. It's the last one, okay? Raheem Sterling is a professional footballer. He plays for Manchester City, City, and England. Right now, this very second, he's in Russia getting ready with the England football team as they play Panama in the World Cup. You might have heard of him, you might not. He's been in the news for an array of misdemeanors, including eating at Greg's. <laughs> eating at Greg's in his Bentley, oh my gosh. Having in a tattoo of, his, of an assault rifle on his leg, and even buying his house, sorry, his mum a house. Oh, what a, what, a, what a horrible person. He's got this reputation for some reason for being a young man who's only interested in money. But there's more to his story. He wrote an article this week. It's tremendous. I recommend you read it. It's so tremendous. Speaking on this subject and on the, his portrayal in the media, and he says this, can I trust you? Can I tell you my story? And will you really listen? If you read certain papers, maybe you already think you know me. Maybe you think you know my story and what I care about, but do you really? Do you know me? He describes how his father was murdered when he was two years old, and, and not long after that, his mum left him and his sister in Jamaica when she, while she moved to England to get a degree, trying to get them a better life. They eventually went over and joined her when he was five, and he said, my mum was working as a cleaner at some hotels to make some extra money so that she could pay for a degree. I'll never forget waking up at five in the morning before school and helping her clean the toilets at the hotel in Stonebridge. I'd be arguing with my sister like, no, no, you get the toilets this time, I've got the bed sheets. And the only good part about it was that my mum would let us pick anything we wanted from the vending machine when we finished for breakfast. I can remember when I was a kid, there was like three or four times when I was on the bus home from training and my mum would text me a new address and she would say, this is where we're living now because we couldn't afford the rent at the old place. The day that I bought my mum a house, that was probably the happiest I've ever been. Do you see his point? Some people might think they know what Raheem Sterling is all about, that his story is all about money, bling, and attitude, but it's not. 
And all he asks is that we listen while he tells his side of the story, get the full picture before we make our judgment. Can we do the same with God? Maybe you think, you know God's story and what God cares about, but do you really? Yes. God is committed to justice. Yes. God is powerful. He's awesome. He's big and we're small. But here's the thing. The teacher says that God is in heaven and we're on earth. It's, it's right there in our passage. Verse 2. But around 400 years after this was written, everything changed. You see, God himself came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus came all the way down to our world and he lived as one of us. He was born and raised as a working class northerner. He got tired. He learned a trade. He had friends. He suffered grief. He got angry. Eventually he died. He lived as one of us. In every way he walked our paths and he knows our burdens. He knows what we feel. He knows what we long for. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus so understands us that he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And more than that, Jesus came knowing that humanity could never achieve God's moral standards. This meant that there was a distance between us and God because God is so pure, he cannot be in the presence of anything that is not perfect. Now, none of us would say we're perfect. It's like a catchphrase for our generation, isn't it? I'm not perfect, but... None of us would say we're perfect, but to be near to God, you have to be. Anything that tries to get near to God that is not perfect gets burned up like a satellite gets burned up when it re-enters the Earth's atmosphere. So Jesus gave his life to change all of this. There's a great swap whereby Jesus takes upon himself everything that we've ever done that has not met God's moral standards, and he gives us his record instead. When he died, all of our moral imperfection was burned up in him, and we were given his perfect record. Excuse me. <coughs> God the Father then raised up Jesus from the dead as a sign that what Jesus has done was acceptable. It worked. Now this is Jesus' story. And the Bible calls it the good news. It's good news because God came down from heaven to redeem and retrieve what he loves. And do you know what that is? It's you and me. It's us. This good news means that when Jesus teaches his followers how to pray and quotes this passage, it's slightly changed. All right, Matthew 6, he says, pray like this, our Father in heaven. Do you see the difference? God's still in heaven, but we refer to him differently. We refer to him as our Father See, Jesus' work is to bridge that gap between God and us. And now he brings us into God's family as precious children, daughters and sons. That's the other side of God's story. <coughs> I do apologize. You see, God is powerful and he is strong and he is committed to justice and he is a consuming fire. He's not entirely safe. That's all right. But he's not distant and he's not disinterested. He's not a removed authoritative authoritarian dictator seeking to micromanage and frighten us into submission. He's a father who wants to give us his undivided love just as much as he wants to receive ours. So given that this is God's whole story, can you bring yourself to look again at those passages that you found distasteful? But look at them in the light of who God really is, the full revelation of who he is. Can you come to God ready to listen? He invites us to. Hands down, that is my favorite thing about Jesus Christ as I read the Gospels. You know, whoever he's talking to, he's constantly inviting them to listen, always inviting them into a conversation, always inviting them into a relationship. Jesus never writes us off until we write him off. And if we come ready to listen to Jesus, then we are guarding our steps as we approach. 
It's part of fearing God and being respectful. Now the teacher does say there is another way that we can fear God and be respectful, and that's to be quiet. We said it earlier, shut up. Shut up. It's a great way to respect God. So he puts it like this, let your words be few. Now really what the teacher is getting at here, what he's actually getting at in this whole passage is that this is a heart attitude. It's all about the way that we orient ourselves to God. If we come ready to listen, the teacher says, we are wise. But if we don't, we're fools. And the teacher warns that God takes no pleasure in fools. Now what is it that marks a fool in our passage? Let's look again, verse 2. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who don't know that they do wrong. What is it that fools do? Let's read on. Don't be quick with your mouth. Don't be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you're on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. And then again in verse 7. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. So what marks the fool? Many words. They don't come to listen. They don't guard their steps when they enter God's house. They're hasty to speak, and they're quick with their mouths. Oh, they bring sacrifices. They say all the right stuff. But the problem is deep within. It's in their hearts. Their posture towards God is not that they want to receive or hear from God. They want to impress with their many words and grand promises. But the problem is, as we see, their words and promises are meaningless. They're empty. They're not heartfelt. And in some cases, these people had no intention of keeping their word. That's the other thing that my two colleagues at work picked up on. Oh, that's rubbish, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Thanks for that. They had no intention of keeping their word. And that's what Jesus has in his sights when he teaches his followers to pray in Matthew 6. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by others. But I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. And when you pray, don't keep babbling on like the pagans because they think they're going to be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them because your father knows what you need even before you ask him. See, Jesus points out it's a heart issue. These people don't guard their steps when they approach God. They don't want to listen to what he's got to say. They look like believers. They've come to make a sacrifice like Mike was saying earlier from that psalm. That's the Old Testament worship system. They're following it by the book. In verse 2, we see they're aware that they're talking before God. They're aware that they're talking to him. But there's no respect. There's no fear. There's no reverence. That's what my colleague said. Oh, you know if someone respects you when they keep their promises, when they keep their words. Yeah, yeah, you do. There's no moment of pause with these fools before they open their mouths. There's no eagerness or urgency to keep their promises they make before God. No second thoughts about trying to break it. Which all indicates that these people in the teacher's sights are completely casual about God. So if God isn't first in their hearts, it's because something else is, and it's themselves. They are self-obsessed. It's as if they have no real sense of who they're dealing with, and that's why the teacher is at pains to point out, God's in heaven, and you guys ain't. So who's most important here? Do the maths. They don't get it. The sense we get here is that it's all about them, and it makes them fools. And we accept that logic, don't we? We, we accept that vanity and self-obsession are kind of hallmarks of foolish people. We've actually got a song that points this out, don't we? 1972, Absolute Tune, Carly Simon, You're So Vain, You Probably Think This Song Is About You. Now we know the chorus, but listen to these verse words, these, these words from the verse, and listen out for what impression we have of what kind of person this is. 
You walked into the party like you were walking onto a yacht. You had one eye on the mirror and watched yourself gavotte. It's like a French twirl. Oh, you had me several years ago when I was still naive. Well, you said that we made such a pretty pair and that you would never leave, but you gave away the things you loved, and one of them was me. Well, you're where you should be all the time, and when you're not, you're with some underworld spy or the wife of a close friend, the wife of a close friend, and you're so vain. Now tell me, doesn't it sound like that person is a fool? Walking in like they're a movie star, watching themselves do French twirls, giving away the things they love, betraying close friends as they prioritize their own desires. What is the picture we've got here, guys? It's all about them. And that's what they see these fools are like in Ecclesiastes. It's terribly casual behavior. And the teacher says God has no pleasure in them. So what about us? How can we be casual about God? I think one thing is we may not always be careful to guard our steps when we go to the house of God. Mike really helpfully pointed out God's house in the New Testament is actually the church. It's us. I don't mean when we go into a church building or just gather together on a Sunday. It's, it's, any, it's the gathering of God's people. So when you meet with God's people, whether it's for coffee or life group or when we get together on a Sunday morning, do you guard your steps and prepare your hearts to listen? Listen to the wisdom of the saints. Listen to the gospel truths in the songs that we sing. Listen to the word of God preached. That's just one way. Another way we can be overly casual about God is with our vows. We say we're a Christian, that we follow Jesus, and we've given our lives to him. But what about when that unexpected diagnosis comes? Or when you're passed over for that promotion? Again. Or when you realize that your children are struggling in life? Or what about when we reach a certain age and we haven't achieved everything that we wanted to? Will we keep our vows and walk through those pains with Jesus Christ and his people? It's not a problem to feel them. But will we walk through them with Jesus? Will we listen to him? Last one. We can see if we're casual about God or not. If we're casual about God or not by seeing if we're grumbling. You know, grumbling tells us that we have a divided heart and that on some level we're not grateful. We'll make excuses for ourselves and say things like, well, it's all about grace. And we allow ourselves the leeway to two-time God in our hearts. But Derek Kidner says, no amount of emphasis on grace can justify taking liberties with God. The very concept of grace demands gratitude, and gratitude, by definition, cannot be casual. Grace Church, are we a grateful people? Can we help each other to be? I think we can. That's just three ways we can be casual. There are more. But the teacher says it's not all about us. And the good news is we don't have to live like this. See, the teacher says, let your words be few. And then he ties that directly into who God is. God's up there in heaven. He's in the driving seat. He's on the throne of the cosmos, not us. So make it your first order of business to listen and let your words be few. And it's interesting how Jesus adapts this. He doesn't say God's awesome and amazing and you're not. He says, your father knows what you need before you ask him, so let your words be few. In both cases, the command, let your words be few, is a call to take our eyes off ourselves and look up at him. Put them on God. Now for us today, it's about fixing our eyes on the person of Jesus Christ. God made man and fleshed. Jesus said, if you've seen me, then you have seen the Father. And in a few minutes, Mike's going to take us through the Lord's Supper. And in that, we draw near to the foot of our dear Savior. It's a corporate time to look at Jesus together. 
It's a picture of what we're to do every day. So as we gaze at the risen Lord Jesus and spend time with him and learn the sound of his voice, we learn to love him more. We find ourselves realizing he is greater and grander and more glorious than we could have ever imagined. It's just like Aslan tells Lucy in C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian. Every year you grow, you will find me bigger. So it is with Jesus Christ. If we go to listen, every time we go back, we will find him bigger. So Grace Church, will we together seek to be listeners first? People who learn and love the voice of our great shepherd? Will we do that? Can we commit to doing that? That's the call on our lives here. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful that it exposes who we are. It exposes us in our folly, but it never leaves us there because it introduces us to the person of your son, Jesus Christ. And we see that in him, in him, all of the yearnings of our hearts are met. All of the problems we face, we can face them not alone. And actually in him, there's hope that we can change and become more like him and be free from the things that tie us down. So we just want to say thank you so much for Jesus. We love him. We need him. Help us. Please help us to listen to him. Amen.